This is Dave Broadbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine, considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is Biology uh, and also Psychology 2606, Brain and Behavior. Hope you enjoy it. Smoke weed every day. All right. So today and probably next two days as well, we're going to talk about drugs and hormones. Uh, spend a lot more time on drugs. <laughs> Then uh, the hormone stuff, uh, partially because it's more interesting, uh, and also partially uh, I teach a course that will probably be offered, I think, next year called Neuropharmacology. So some expertise in this area. So I like to talk about things I know about. <laughs> so, uh, that's sort of the thing I have. So I'll spend a little more time on that. And I think, like I said, I think it's more interesting. Um, the hormone stuff's interesting in its own right, but, you know, we'll spend 20 minutes on it, but we'll spend two and a half hours about drugs. I guess part of stop saying we'll spend... You might spend so much time on drugs. So, here's the first question. What's a drug? <coughs> it's a good question, because while I'm never, I have never been one of those guys that at the beginning of a conversation says, first we should define our terms. Usually that means I walk away because you're a loser. But we kind of have to know what it means if we're going to discuss a topic, we have to say this is in the purview of what we're talking about. And most of us right away will say, well, we all know what it means. And we do. We, and I bet we would agree on about 90%. Yeah, at least 90% if I need a bunch of substances. Would you, would you think they were drugs? Let's try that. Okay. Uh, heroin's in a drug. You put your hand up to the hand, it's a drug. Okay, so we all know. Uh, cocaine. Sure, sure, sure. LSD. Yeah, sure. Uh, marijuana. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Alcohol. Yeah, okay. Uh, Caffeine. Yeah. Okay, so we're pretty good. We're pretty much in agreement. Gasoline. You can have gasoline. Wait a second. Contact cement. Yes. After having had an experience putting a, finishing a bathroom with my father once, and we couldn't have the fan on. We were a little giggly. So you don't think of those things as drugs, but they can act as drugs. So we need some kind of definition. And one, one you hear a lot of, I think the one that the book likes, uh, some version of this, is it alters physiology, but it is not food. So, is vitamin C a drug? Hmm. I don't think most of us, well, you think, is vitamin C a drug? I don't think most of us think of it as a drug, right? <coughs> yeah. Yet, it does this. Like, that's, you know. 
So, and I don't mean vitamin C, you know, friends forever. But, so that fits that, that vitamin C fits that definition. Now definitions, as oftentimes, you know, aren't great. But there's a whole class of things. Vitamins help. Um, oxygen does that. We call oxygen drug. So, there's, it's a tough thing here. I, we might have to, there's also things that are poisons. Like I say, gasoline, mugwort, which is a, uh, an herb. A lot of herbs, actually, even ones that we would typically eat, this isn't something we would eat typically. It's used in, uh, in fact, a lot of medicines come out of it. Uh, <coughs> large amounts of mugwort can create, can, can cause abortions, like spontaneous abortions. One of the ways they used to, one of the less nasty ways people used to uh, cause this. Hawks and beer. Right? Hops stuff makes it bitter. If you take a bag of hops and put it by your face when you're sleeping, you'll uh, have you'll have really vivid dreams. But you put hops in beer to make them make it bitter and to make it uh, to preserve it. Hops are a poison. You can you anything can be a poison eventually. Anything you get poison eventually. So those many things are poison. Right? So maybe we don't need a definition, which sucks. It bothers me. The scientists and I like things to be clear. Like I said, I think we all agree on what drugs are, though most of you don't think didn't think gasoline was a drug. <coughs> the other thing is, what about things that we know are drugs? We would all agree are drugs. I'm talking about Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. <coughs> all agree those things have drugs in them. There's caffeine and coke. There's caffeine and coke. There's alcohol in beer. Right? I work with someone who does not drink coffee, but drinks excessive amounts of Diet Coke. I drink coffee. Partially for the, for the caffeine. I had a caffeine headache this morning, and I had some coffee, and now I don't have a caffeine headache anymore. Works great. But other times, I'll just have a cup of coffee, because it's like, I think I'll have a cup of coffee. Sure, maybe about a third of the time, about a third, a quarter of the time, I'll think, oh boy, I'm kind of tired and I have to teach a class. I probably should have a cup of coffee. But most of the time, it's like, I'd like a cup of coffee because I like coffee. It's delicious. Or a Coke. Like, how often when, you're, when, they, when they ask at McDonald's, they say, what would you like to drink when you order your uh, meal? And they say, that's the international symbol for meal. I don't know why. And they, you say, you think to yourself, well, either Sprite. Or Coke, but Coke has caffeine, and I really need some drugs. No, you just said Coke, because you like Coke. Even a beer, which is a delivery system for alcohol. But if I'm mowing the lawn, 
in the summer when it's nice out. Because I don't mow the lawn, it's not nice out. And I come in the house and I go to my beer fridge. I have separate fridges. Uh, so I go to my beer fridge after I mow the lawn, and you know, I'll just drink a beer. And I don't savor it. I just, you know, it's freaking PBR. Just drink it. Or when you're camping, right? You just drink that because it's just only safe. It's safe because the water, you never know, beer's safe. So start drinking. Just after you finish drinking coffee at 11 o'clock, you switch to beer. My wife one day said, we literally just stopped for the night and I bought a case of beer. She said, where did all the beer go? I said, well, you're gone and I drank it all. <laughs> anyway, I'm lost. <laughs> so even a beer you'll have because you're not even looking for the alcohol at all. You just... It's, it's cold, it's refreshing. It's not like I'm doing ads. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess an intuitive definition will have to do, and that's really, really annoying to me. This isn't doing what it's supposed to do. <coughs> Let me just stop something for a second. Because this stupid thing. Okay, I'm going to do that. It's okay. I'm sure it'll be fine. The reason I use this is because I can see my freaking slides, and I can't, it's not telling me what slide's coming up. It's not, oh, there it goes. Okay, good, we're back. And we're back. Okay, so here's names. The name of a drug. Here's the name of a drug. 7-chloro-1,3-dihydro-1-methyl-5-phenol-2-H-1-4-benzodiazepine-2-1. It's a very helpful thing. I clearly know what that is because I memorized all organic chemistry. I do know what that is because I made up these slides. That's diazepam. It's a generic name, it's got a lowercase letter. So this is this. Here's another one. This is not the same drug, this is another lowercase, you see that, fluoxetine. Oops. Okay, if this thing is going to keep pissing me off. There it goes. This molecule is this molecule is this drug. And I'm sure, again, with all your incredible knowledge like I have of organic chemistry, you could just vision this just like that by reading that. Actually, is this value? Trade name, trade names have capital letters. And fluoxetine is prosa. Okay. So this prozac is fluoxetine. This, this, and this are all the same thing. Trade names have capital letters. You should have, actually, it's, it's the case that, in fact, heroin is a trade name. It should have a capital H. Heroin was developed by the Bear Company from the people who brought you aspirin. So heroin is a trade name. It should always be capital H when it's written. So if you're reading a paper, like if you guys, a lot of you guys now, there's about a little more than a quarter of you have given me your paper uh, topics. That's uh, not topics, but you know, like articles you choose. Some of you have drug things. You'll typically they'll talk about they'll use generic names because they're agreed upon. 
They're not going to rate this out and doesn't help anybody. They might rate it out once and then in brackets say diazepam. They'll never call it value. Dosages, okay, of drugs, we have to have different dosages. So different dosage sizes will affect, have different effects on different people, different animals. Because think about it, when I say animals, we have to worry about non-humans too. Because a lot of the times, if we're thinking about psychoactive drugs, which are the, you know, the fun ones, which is what we're going to talk about, we're not going to, we, we, it's hard to do tests clinical trials on people with drugs that are illegal. It can be done in Canada, or you can just behave with us. Uh, in the States, literally, it's illegal. So you, like, you can't do heroin research in the States. It's illegal. In Canada, you can. Uh, I will say, though, that if you have heroin in your lab, uh, it is kept in a safe, and the RCMP come by every week to measure it, and see how much you have. Make sure you're not, you know, dealing. I had a friend whose summer job was literally injecting rats with either heroin or speed. I mean, not just for fun. It was... But yeah, every, every week the RC, an RCMP officer would come by, see the logs of when they give the injections, see the, what goes in, goes out kind of thing, no problem. Right? So it's, it's, it's regulated, of course. So you can't really do stuff to say, let's say heroin, let's say LSD. It's hard to do that kind of work. <coughs> With people. So we're going to have to worry about animals as well. So, especially if they weigh different amounts, right? Like, think about that. Like, some people, like, the bigger you are, how are you fall? Uh, Jimmy Cliff. The bigger, the bigger you are, the more drug you can take. Just raw amount, right? Because there's more of you. You had me beat. Did you Wi Fi? <coughs> Here. <laughs> so, what you want to do then is standardize it, right? So, we'll look at milligrams per kilogram. So, milligrams of drug per kilogram of thing, of person, animal, whatever. So I weigh 180, 185 pounds, which is what, about 80 kilos, something like that? I bet I can drink more alcohol than anybody who weighs less than that. Right? This whole group right here. Most of them more experience. 
which means it's more expensive for me. So you guys are lucky. It's, I also have impeccable taste in alcohol, so I like all of it. It's my favorite flavor, beverage alcohol. So we're going to standardize it. Sometimes you'll see like millimoles per milliliter of blood. And there's an easy conversion. So this is great drug. So what we'll use to look at the effects of drugs are what are called dose-response curves. So we pick some variable for a response. And then we will plot the response as a function of the dose. Okay? So here's a quick example that hopefully makes it sensible. So one drink and I'm relaxed, like one regular alcoholic drink. Uh, how, about, uh, how about an old-fashioned? You like an old-fashioned? Delicious drink. Shot of rye, sugar cube, bitters, maraschino cherry, and then uh, orange rind and a bunch of ice. You will get a lot of drink recipes in the next couple of days. <laughs> or one of my all-time favorite drinks, a drink invented by my father, but named by my mother, the Black Forest Coke. Tastes like Black Forest cake. It's a shot of vodka, a shot of cherry brandy, a shot of creme cacao. Well, two shots of vodka. <laughs> and then top it with Coke. And then add a couple of cherries to the top. It tastes like a Black Forest cake. It's like you're drinking cake. And then you've had four of them. And you go, I can't stand anymore. <laughs> or you ever, ever have a Long Island iced tea? That's not one drink. <laughs> That's all your drinks. Because yes. it's everything clear. So it's gin and white rum and tequila and vodka, shot of each, and Cointreau or triple sec, and then just color it with cola till it looks like iced tea. And it actually kind of tastes like iced tea. It's creepy. That, yeah. it, you know, and then you drink one and you go, ah, oh, where am I? <laughs> and you make the mistake of going, I'll have another. <laughs> and that's the mistake. So if I have one actual drink, like the old fashioned I mentioned, which has just a shot of alcohol in it, the only way I make a baby with one shot, uh, it relaxes me. Right? <coughs> one drink is relaxing. It's pleasant. Calm down. I've had a long day of standing in front of people making inane jokes and telling stories about when I was high. Which I can say now. Um, four drinks, and it's like, hmm, this is fun. Yay. So we're talking, we get about quarter after ten. This is around nine. Quarter after ten, let's say. And I'm lying on, I'm lying on the couch, because my wife's binge-watching some show I don't want to watch, so I'm lying on the couch and I'm watching Mad Men. It makes you drink. It actually makes you drink. You have, you have to. And I get up and it's like, hoo-hoo. And it's like, you know, I'm, a loud, I'm louder. And in fact, that's, that's a real effect of alcohol. You, you, you speak more loudly. Uh, you, your voice actually goes up a little bit, too, as far as frequency. You speak a little bit higher when you're drunk. You know, you can tell when people are drunk, right? Remember when you were in high school and you would pretend that you would walk in the house and act like and you'd over-enunciate words? Hi, mom and dad. How are you? Yes, we had fun. I am going to bed. And you didn't fool them. Your parents aren't stupid. I can tell you as a parent, you go, oh, kid's drunk. Oh, whatever. Made it home. <laughs> you didn't, dri didn't drive. We're fine. 
eight drinks, which is, I don't usually get that far, on a weeknight, uh, and I'm relaxed, in other words, passed out. Right, or really tired, you know, you get that, this is when being drunk has, is no fun, this is when, this is the fun part, right in the middle, then you get to this part here, and you're like, oh god, this was a mistake. Why do I have a meeting tomorrow? One more? <laughs> uh, so, and that's when you make that great decision. Sure. But there's something interesting. You pull up your little cocktail recipe book. Some of this stuff may be autobiographical. So, uh, so, and that's what a dose response curve looks like very often. That kind of shape. It's like if, if we were to, we could, how could we measure? Hmm. Pick a pick a variable. How could we measure? Let's not do it with, with you know, um, blood pressure or something, because that's a little invasive. Let's think of something behavioral we could use to measure this kind of measure drunk gossipy. Could you use? And nothing physiological. I mean, we could do that, but I don't have a blood pressure cuff at all. And you probably don't either. If you do, maybe you're a, I don't know, live with a healthcare professional of some sort. I don't know. What else could you use? That you can do at home. Like I said, your voice will get louder, but most of us don't have a decimal meter sitting around. What could you use in that? Any ideas? Hmm. What could we use? You can use a paper. Oh, click this guy. You could, like, track the amount of time spent laughing. That's good. That's pretty good, actually. You probably could do that. So if you're watching some television show that's funny, right? assuming each one has the, roughly the same number of laughs, which is we could assume something like that, and you're binge-watching a sitcom. So it's always the same show, with decent experimental design here. You're watching 30 Rock, which I just finished binge-watching. <laughs> so I'd watched it originally, but I forgot how funny that was. And how many laughs? So you're going to laugh a little bit at the beginning, but, right? and you'll laugh a lot in the middle and hardly anything at all because you really can't. You're not paying attention anymore, paying attention to the fact that you probably tomorrow won't feel well. Yeah, that works. We get that number of laughs per minute, something like that. That's easy. Sure. Right. But you could, I mean, now, something we couldn't measure or tip away. I guess most phones have, you can download a DB uh, meter if you want. <coughs> but you could measure how loud someone's voice is because it's, you're relaxed, everything's good, you're louder, and you're quieter again because you're. So you can do that. That kind of shape is sort of uh, either like that or like this, depending on our variable, is pretty common in dose response curves. So you'll get some kind of U or inverted U function. It's really a pretty common thing. response curves. Screw that up there. No, I'm good. Okay. Okay. So what we have on, these are dose response curves. We have morphine and morphine plus naloxone on activity and nose poke. Activity, how are we going to measure activity in rats? I think this is rats. It might be mice. <coughs> this paper card is actually mice. 
Uh, you put them on a four by eight sheet of plywood, and you have grid squares drawn on it, and you count how many times they cross lines. Pretty easy. Uh, you, so you do that with a video camera, and then you take some poor undergraduate and make him or her count the number of times the lines have been crossed. The other way you can do it, actually, the way it's typically done now, uh, if you have a little tiny bit of money for your work, is you buy photo cell, photo beams, uh, photo cells, and every time they interrupt a photo cell, we call that activity. And I think that's what's done here, but it looks a bit. Almost certainly. That's probably per minute. Might be a bigger bit of time. And nose poke, a nose poke is when you, an animal pokes its nose in a hole. Mice and rats, what they'll do, it's a way to investigate things. So if you just put a hole in the side of a, like a little arena they're in, a little box, they'll poke their nose in. And all you do there is you put a little photo beam in there, you count how many times they break the photo beam. So we have morphine, and look what it does. Nothing. Oh, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more activity, and I've strung out on morphine. <coughs> and those are two different strains of rats or mice. Yeah, they're probably mice. So you see we have the dose here, milligrams per kilogram. So you weigh the rats or mice, whatever the hell they are. I don't know, they're bears. I wasn't bears. <laughs> They hold the bear down while I give it the shot of morphine. Um, and then we have activity. There's something odd here. What I mean, you don't know a great deal yet about this stuff, but you probably know that morphine depresses nervous system activity. Right? Why are they running around more with higher doses of morphine? Thoughts? Until they got, they've got so much morphine in it that this, this, this has become unpleasant. And they just are in the corner. Like, <laughs> what do you think? So a depressant is making them more active and making them more, more searching. Lower their inhibitions? Exactly. So it's called a taming effect, usually with animals. And what it does is it. It, 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 it's, it's inhibiting, it's a nervous system inhibitor, right? So it slows you down, but it's also inhibiting inhibition. So it's disinhibition. So what you're getting is normally a rat or a mouse or whatever, I'm just going to say rat because I'm just going to rat. What, uh, normally what a rat would do is it wouldn't run around very much. Notice how the very low dose, in fact zero, so that's control, and the maximum dose here are equal. They don't do anything. What they'll do is they'll stand on the edge and just look around. Because the world's dangerous out in, a, in, in an open field for a rat. Because hawks swoop down and eat them and other predators. Let's stick with hawks, though, because it's cool. Again, this happens when, this happens when, you, when you drink alcohol, right? Now, alcohol is a nervous system depressant. It slows down activity, except it inhibits inhibition. So you do stupid things when you drink. Right? You do stupid things when you drink. Um, 
So you might, for example, react to some perceived slight a lot more negatively. Someone bumps into you. Normally, what do we do as good Canadians? Sorry. Sorry about that. When you've had five drinks and you run into somebody at a bar, you go, what's your fucking problem? Right? I don't. I'm saying people do. I've seen it. We've all seen bar fights. They're very pleasant. Isn't the Halloween pub coming up, or is that already happened? Oh, yes, I saw the broken pumpkins. Very mature. I'm sure it was all completely on the level that night. No, nothing bad happened. I'm sure nobody had, there were no altercations whatsoever, because that never happens. One year ago, I got thrown through a window. Yeah, it's like five years ago. What's going on here? If you, let's say you don't like me, which is, I, it's hard to understand, let's say you don't. If you're not, if you're nor you wouldn't say anything to me. Like, you'd save that for the profit valuations. Got tenure and something like that. But anyway, um, what if you were hammered? Maybe more likely to come up and say something kind of jerky. Or as a student once did, try to punch me. I have to speak easy. I got up to get a beer for me and my wife. We were just hanging out. I look at the bartender and I set out, you know, two two pints of draft, and she's pulling the pints. And then this guy comes up. He goes, "We're broadcast." I said, "Uh huh." And I'm thinking, "Oh, this is this. There's no way this ends well for anyone." <laughs> and he's kind of, you know, but I, I didn't, you know, he why he just tries to punch me, but he kind of just touches me like he's, he's really not very good at it. Because he's hammered. And again, he's so drunk that the inhibitions are gone. It's inhibited his inhibitions, disinhibition. At which point he fell on the floor because of the, the strength of his incredible punch, which really just kind of touched my face. And uh, one of the bouncer guys came over and said, is he bothering you? I said, I think he's trying to. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, son, which I don't call adults, but in this case it felt good. So. <laughs> said, son, you made a giant mistake because I could, there's a lot of things I could do and I'm also, I grade your tests. On the other hand, I think you're likely banned from the bar for the rest of your life. I'll talk to you later. I didn't even know he was. I was teaching intro, big class. I got an email from there like four days later. Dear Dr. Brodbeck, I'm very sorry. I think I tried to punch you in the face. That's what a friend of mine told me. I just replied, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, I didn't even know, I can't remember the guy's name. But he was inhibited, his inhibitions were inhibited and he tried to punch me. It's the weirdest thing. I walked back and I broke my mirror my wife and she said, what, what just happened? I said, oh, one of my students tried to beat me up. And I'm this. <laughs> she said, we should leave. I said, I just bought these beers. We'll go after we have a beer. It was a weird moment. You do this job long enough, no matter any job, something weird happens. Okay, so we can describe doses and responses and we can describe them Generally, so we can talk about a general animal will behave like this if given this dose, because we standardize the dose, depending on the variable, whatever. We also have to describe the effectiveness of the drug. So there's two things that we can talk about here. One of them is ED50. That's the effective dose for 50% of the population. And that's subjective. In, in, yeah, it's going to be subjective. So the ED50 for 
a drug, I will ask you if it works. And I can ask you very systematically. Right? So let's say it's Let's say you're thinking of a pain medication, like, uh, well, like morphine, okay? And you have some kind of pain, and then I'm going to measure your pain response. How do I measure pain response? There are pain questionnaires. The McGill pain questionnaire, it's called, actually. The MDQ, it's great. It's really well established. It's been used for years. Uh, it's used diagnostically. It's used in research. So I can actually give you this questionnaire and see how much of the drug you needed to say you didn't feel pain anymore. I can standardize that milligrams per kilogram, and I can say that's the dose for a certain type of pain. I can do this with rats. How do you give rats a questionnaire? Well, you don't. What you do with rats is you do something like the paw link test. So you take a rat and put it on a hot plate. And it's not so hot it cooks the rat, because that would be horrible, and you don't want your rats dead. But you turn it up about enough that it's the same temperature as when, when your car, if you've got a like what your car feels like in the summer on the inside. So it's not going to burn anybody, but it's unpleasant. So you, you give them a shot of morphine, and you see how long it is till they lift their paw up and lick it. The paw lick test. It's pretty simple, uh, and it's a nice measure of, because as soon as they lick their paw, that's when you take them off the hot plate, obviously. So we can measure a pain response. That's kind of that's a little bit more objective, but it is it's still kind of subjective between an animal. There may be some kind of tough rat that's like, I'm not licking my paw, research boy. <laughs> I'm tough rat. So I'm still waiting, I'm still using self-reports for effective dose. Or if it's something we're doing, let's say we're taking um, I mean you think about alcohol. Or you think about you think about marijuana. It's, to help, right? So you, you're smoking uh, some strain. You order many different types in order to be scientific about your weed. <laughs> and you take notes. And when is this? Is when is this enough that I feel something? Oh, feel something. That's a pretty subjective thing, right? But even if I was to measure it using some sort of, I don't know. With alcohol, it's easy. Your ability to, uh, with your eyes shut and your feet together, to take your fingertip and touch your nose. <coughs> and you'd be surprised. Uh, next time you have like two beers and you feel fine, like you've had two beers in 40 minutes, kind of thing. Try that. You'd be amazed how you go. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, no, I, I was distracted. Let me try it again. And it screws up. It's still kind of subjective. You're still working. It's like self-reports. It's self-reports. <clears throat> now, the LD50 is the lethal dose for 50% of the population. Yes, the ultimate dependent variable, death. Mm. So that's not subjective. <laughs> You're dead. Because anything can be a poison and enough the dose, right? You can drink too much water. That's the LD50, the lethal dose for 50% of the population. And now we take the lethal dose, divide by the effective dose, and we get what's called the therapeutic index for the drug. The higher the TI, the safer the drug. Right? 
So if we think about something like, well, like marijuana, uh, it's very, let's not even use marijuana, let's use LSD. Better. The therapeutic index for LSD is basically infinite. Could you take enough LSD to kill yourself? Probably. But the amount would be so large, you wouldn't be able to procure that amount of LSD. So it's basically a safe drug. Now, could you do something stupid after you take the drug? Oh, honestly, yes. A friend of mine once jumped on top of a police car and tried to hold the lights off it. That's a mistake. You go to jail for that. That's, they don't like that at all. Also, you get a lot of this, a lot of, you, you fall down the stairs a lot, if you understand what I'm saying, on the way to your jail cell. See what I mean? They don't like them. You go on top of their cars to pull the thing off. They're opposed to that, the cops. But if you were just sitting down, it's almost impossible. Okay, let's think of morphine. Uh, well, let's go, what the hell, let's go with heroin. Uh, the therapeutic index for heroin is about four. So four times the effective dose, the dose you need to, be, to feel high, will kill you. Oh, oh and alcohol is 3.5. That's 3.5. So if, if you were sitting down, if you were doing shots, which none of you, well, many of us have done shots, right? So you do like four in a row. That's enough for most people to be drunk in about 15 minutes, right? So 15 minutes later, you go, oh. If you did 12, you're going to die. This is why, and this is where the problems come into things like binge drinking, right? Where people... And there's social pressures, and they'll do this, drink so much, drink so much, do another shot, and you don't feel it right away. Like, if you just drank half a 40 ounce, which is what 12 shots basically is, it'll kill you. I mean, right, right, all, you know, go for that. That can kill you. Doesn't want necessarily, but 50% of people, well, <laughs> yeah, alcohol is actually not as safe as heroin. By this measure. Yeah, there's other things with heroin, you gotta buy it from heroin dealers. Right? You gotta buy it from, you know, the Hells Angels or Tony Soprano. You know, you can't you can't just where's the you gotta go to LCBO. It's safer there. Yeah. It's a little grubby at ten o'clock. You ever go when the liquor store opens though? At ten o'clock in the morning, so you do grocery shopping early. Okay, well, <coughs> my Saturdays we go grocery shopping, we go to the liquor store, we go home, okay? That's what I do. But sometimes if we go early, you get there right when it opens. It's an interesting set of people that are waiting outside the liquor store until it opens. They all smell like cigarettes. All of them. And I don't, whatever, smoke all you want. Just don't smell like it around me. Um, so that's therapeutic index, right? So we can, this is a way of telling, like I said, it's not going to tell us, are you going to be so dumb that you do something stupid on acid? Are you going to be dumb? Are you, are you going to get killed in a drug deal gone bad? Right? You ever hear, by the way, about drug deals gone good, do you? That's not something that shows up in the paper. Yesterday, a guy on Gore Street bought some fentanyl. Everything turned out fine. You don't see, you don't see that in soup today. <laughs> so, it's not my joke originally. It's the letter. Probably Letterman. 
Okay, potency, effectiveness, or, or efficacy. So, 50, 0.8 for both drugs. This assumes they do the same thing. So let's say they're both pain medications. And yeah, they're both pain medications here. One with the lower ED50 is more potent. So if we're comparing, I don't know, ASA, like aspirin, and, and morphine, they both are painkillers. Morphine's way more potent. Now, efficacy is the maximum amount of effect the drug will have. So again, mor morphine is also more efficacious. It has more effectiveness than ASA, than aspirin, or, or acetaminophen if you want to use the painkiller. Right? Anybody here who's had surgery where they cut you open, they will give you morphine. Right? They don't just say, here's a lot of aspirin. Here's a whole bottle of Tylenol. Just take those. You'll be fine. No matter how much Tylenol you take, post-surgical pain <coughs> typically isn't dealt with on the first day. Let's see the minute. Or ibuprofen or ASA or anything like that. It's dealt with using an opiate. Because it can kill more pain. So morphine versus aspirin, which I assume said ASA, or I should have capitalized aspirin. So morphine is more potent and more effective than, than ASA. Okay, does that make sense? On the other hand, there's no need to use a really potent drug if you have a very minor thing, like a headache, you don't take morphine for a headache. Right. Oh my, I got a little, little headache, I better take some morphine. So it's not like there's no point, because people say, why would you take a drug that isn't as effective as it's potent? Because you don't need it. Okay, okay some key terms. So the primary effects or main effects versus side effects. This is completely subjective. It depends on what you're taking the drug for. All, it's all in your point of view. So if you're taking morphine to deal with pain, and I don't mean existential pain, Oh man, life has no meaning. I'm going to take some morphine. Um, I mean, like, you know, you broke a leg. Battlefield injury. You know, like fighting a war. Somebody just take a bullet through the arm. And if TV has taught us anything, people just keep going. No. I know a guy who was over in Afghanistan. He said, when you get hit, he was ever hit by one of his guys. He said, higher up guy. So one of those guys got hit once, and he said, it, 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 it seems like it hurts like hell. <laughs> you don't just go, hey, I'll be okay, Sarge. That doesn't happen. You go, ah! And you can give him some morphine. They don't just say, again, here, take some aspirins. It'll be fine. So if you're taking it to deal with pain, the main effect is the analgesia, and the side effect in that case is the hot. It may be a fun side effect, right? If you enjoy the high, some people don't like that. Right? I know my, my mom broke her ankle or something about, geez, that was quite a while, 15 years ago. That was when my dad had to call my brother and ask, how do you wash clothes? Because he didn't know. Over time. So 
they gave her a little morphine. And I was talking to her on the phone, and she said, it's really unpleasant. It feels like I'm floating. And I said, it sounds great. What do you mean it's unpleasant? No, it's horrible. It's like, I'm, it's like, I, it's like there's no gravity. I said, that sounds awesome. <laughs> but she didn't like it. But that's a side effect. The main effect in that case was it killed the pain in her, I think, right ankle because she broke it. Now, if you're taking it because you just want to get high, Quicksilver Messenger Service. It's like, you know, band in the 60s. All their songs were just about drugs. Which, if you go back and listen, you can tell. But at least they're okay. I'm like the Grateful Dead. You ever listen to the Grateful Dead? What do two Grateful Dead fans say when they run out of weed? Who's the shitty band we're listening to? So, if you're taking it because you want to be high, the side effect is the analgesia. It's completely based on point of view. Okay? This always kills me when marijuana was illegal and people said, you know, yeah, but it's also a great medicine, man. It's like, yeah, oh, you're taking it for its antibacterial properties? Is that why you're saying you're smoking weed and pretending to be from Jamaica? There's always that one guy, right? There was the one hardcore stoner who in like grade eight, you know, he was putting visine in his eyes, and then there was the other, maybe this is just my school. <laughs> and there's one like completely white guy who thinks he's a Rastafarian. It's like, that's really kind of offensive, I think. You're taking it for its antibacterial So it's all based on point of view. Okay, drugs can be agonists. This will bring up and antagonists. So naloxone, and you know, but naloxone kits are probably, because uh, you can just get them from the federal government, uh, what, what naloxone is, it's an opiate antagonist. So if we think about an agonist, something like morphine, like fentanyl, for example, uh, those are both opiate agonists. They mimic endorphins. Okay? They are so similar to, to endorphin neurotransmitters that they can actually open ion channels by themselves. Okay? And it, the difference is you can take them in such large quantities, unlike when you produce endorphins from being in pain or, being, or exercise or some such thing. Okay? There's an agonist. <coughs> Antagonist does the opposite. So naloxone, what it does is it stops the action of opiates. So if I give you naloxone, in fact, when you suspect it's someone, so if, if, if you ever see somebody who you think is overdosed on opiates and you call an ambulance, the first thing they'll do when they suspect it, they, they figure out it's probably the same thing that you figure, is they'll, they'll give them a shot of naloxone. And what naloxone does is it stops the opiates from working. Any other opiates, the ones that are already bound to you know, transmitter writing sites working. Right? But it's interesting because it, it, it binds to the binding segment. It does not open the, the uh, ion channel. Naloxone has that use, but it's also used in interesting research projects. For example, if you look at when women are taught 
breathing exercises for childbirth, right? Um, it's a way, of course, to deal with pain. If you've never seen a child be born and you look and go, how's that? That can't be real. If you're a woman who's had a kid, you probably think the same thing. But <laughs> when you're watching it happen, you're thinking, that's probably, that looks like it probably hurts. There's a person coming out of you. So people are taught breathing exercises, or they, are take, they take epidurals, and that's perfectly fine. And don't ever shame a woman for having the worst pain a human being can actually endure, going, can I have some painkillers? I hate people who shame women for things like that, or like having one glass of wine when they're pregnant. You're worse than Hitler. It's a glass of wine. It's not going to hurt anybody. Anyway, so... We're going to talk these breathing exercises. And in fact, it shows, uh, we, we test them in, in research, have them, have them do the breathing exercises, and you test their pain tolerance. It's higher than it would be if they not do the breathing exercises, which is pretty cool. And you think, how the hell does that work? And the explanation, it's all psychological, is completely bogus, because that's just giving it a name. Just labeling something isn't actually explaining it. It's psychological, there's not an explanation. Right? Saying, it's, it's, it's called a nominal fallacy, you just gave it a name. It's like saying, hey, Steve, why, don't, why do women when they're having, do breathing exercises have a higher pain threshold? Oh, Steve, oh, of course. That's what you're doing, you say it's psychological. What you might think to yourself, I bet they produce endorphins, those breathing exercises. How do you test that? Well, you give one group of women naloxone when they do the breathing exercises, and another group you don't give naloxone. And then you test their ability to deal with pain. There's a lot of ways you can, a lot of different variables here we can talk about, but uh, the one I was thinking of, uh, paper I read, they used uh, the cold presser task, which is you take a bucket of, of, of salted ice water, so it's really cold, it's below freezing, and you put your hand in it. How long can you hold your hand until you go, ouch, and you take it out? Women that are given naloxone to do the breathing exercises are no different than women that haven't been given naloxone. Oh, sorry, are no different than women that don't do the breathing exercises. And by the way, guys, on average, women have higher pain thresholds than men. Again, because of the thing with the coming out of the baby and the human coming out of the baby. Think of babies' heads. They're huge, and they come out of you. Just think of that for a second. Think of how big baby heads are. They're big. If, she, if, if adult heads were as big, proportionally as baby heads, right? Think about it. Babies have to have snaps in the side of their shirts to get their damn heads through. That's how big a baby head is. That's coming out of someone. If you don't have incredible respect for women already, watch someone have a baby. It's, then you're like, okay, I couldn't do that. I mean, physiologically, I couldn't, but also, I couldn't do that. My favorite person in the world right now. That's very kind. Thank you. I've just, I've, I've just seen it enough that it's. And enough was once. <laughs> okay? The second time I said, Do you want me to come? And she said, No, it's, it's really fine. Go back home. I really don't need you here right now. Like, your work's done. You did your work months ago. Um, so, drugs can have added effects. So that means you take one drug and another. Just don't do that. If you're first psychoactive drugs, look, it's been prescribed, that's one thing. I don't want you, yes, I know weed is legal and it's great and it's fine. Don't also get drunk at the same time. 
still fun. Not a beer because you're getting, you know, nose getting a little dry, but the dries. Or goony mouth, as we used to call it. It's a long story why that is. Maybe I'll tell it to you later. Uh, but take two drugs, the effect of drug one. Let's say we get two drugs, the effect of, uh, and we're going to measure, uh, I don't know, highness. I don't know how we're measuring that. But <coughs> the scale. And drug one gives you three units of highness, and drug two is going to give you four units, so we get seven. That's what a drug is additive. However, drugs very often aren't additive. They're very often super additive. So three and four might give you 19. So uh, sleep with those and martinis, for example. So if I was giving, if you were taking, anybody who's ever taken sleeping pills knows that on the side of the package, it tells you, and that your doctor, and then also now the pharmacist, it's kind of great now the way this, this works, will tell you, do not take this with alcohol. Now, in that case, this happens because, interestingly, the physiological, the, the, the uh, sort of looking for the, uh, The metabolism, metabolic pathway for alcohol, there, there's two metabolic pathways for alcohol. We'll talk about that next time, but maybe not next time, time after, whatever. There are two metabolic pathways for alcohol. Okay? There's also, and there are two metabolic pathways for barbiturates, so something like phenobarbital. Yes. And they share one. So one of, the, one of those two, called the microsomal ethanol oxidizing system, NEOS, both barbiturates and alcohol share those two things. Share those, that one, sorry, metabolic pathway. So in other words, if, and think about it, when a drug's being broken down, when it's being metabolized, that means it can't affect the brain anymore because it it's getting broken down, right? Mm -hmm. Make sense? But if that one metabolic pathway, that the NEOS, is busy breaking down Phenobarbital, it can't break down alcohol. So now the effect of alcohol and the effect of phenobarbital are, are larger than they would be on their own. And this, is, this can be exceedingly dangerous, by the way. And it's also true with things over-the-counter muscle relaxing medicine. You have to be really careful. So something like, you know, Robaxaset, you know, like you... It's like for... Well, it's just it's muscle relaxing. It's for... You know, you throw your back out a little bit when you're shoveling your driveway for the first time. So. <laughs> oh. I will not buy a snowblower because I think I could use that money to buy other things. But every year, sometime around February, I think I probably buy a snowblower. <laughs> but you know, you throw your back out, you buy some of those pills, you take a couple. Do not have a single drink of alcohol. You can get, you can kill yourself. You can die. Be very careful. So super additive effects much more common. This is what I'm saying, don't combine drugs. Right? So there can be super additive effects like that that we understand. There's other, other ones that are, you know, people worry a lot about caffeine and alcohol. So Red Bull and vodka. 
And one of the reasons there is that it's not that that makes you able to drink more alcohol. What it actually does, one of the one of the things that you can tell behaviorally that you've drank enough is you feel tired. That's usually when most of us go, okay, I've had enough. But if the caffeine keeps you a little bit awake, you have more. And if you're not experienced enough with alcohol, in other words, if you're 20 years old and drinking Red Bull and vodka, because you'll eventually grow up and not want that. Um, Red Bull's disgusting anyway. It's like they took Jägermeister and took all the alcohol out of it and put fizz in it. And then mix it with Dr. Pepper. That's kind of what it tastes like. So... So you don't have the experience, so you don't realize, that, oh, that's going to be that's going to stimulate it, and you drink too much and you die. There's nothing magic about alcohol and caffeine together. It's that it, one of the cues that you use to tell that you've drank too much is the fact that you get drowsy. Nobody ever worries about people drinking Irish coffee, which is delicious, by the way, but also it's it's an alcohol drink in coffee. Okay. So how are we going to get these drugs in our system? Well, if you're injecting a drug, you get into a vehicle. And the vehicle is just almost always safe. So there's subcutaneous injection. That's the slowest kind of absorption. That's just underneath the skin. You're not going directly into a vein. You're going underneath the skin. So a lot of times when they want slow, steady absorption of a drug, oftentimes a painkiller kind of drug, when you're in hospital, you might get a small injection into part of your finger or into part of your arm, but it's not into a vein. And it just you get a slow drip of morphine and it will it's absorbed slowly. You can keep the amount pretty steady. It's just a painkiller. <coughs> so that's not going to be a fun route of administration, right? Intramuscular, again, it's not going to be a fun route of administration. Because right into a muscle, you're going to hit vein, you're going to hit the, 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 the circulatory system at some point there, obviously. But right into a muscle, it's going to be slow. That's not as slow as subcutaneous. But it's easy to do. Uh, in fact, what I mentioned before, battlefield medicine. Uh, What's used are these sort of called surrettes. They're little packets of morphine. They have a little tiny, um, like, needle in them. And they just, they, you can put it anywhere on somebody, on anywhere with muscles, so on your chest or there or back here, your leg, and they just slap them like that, and you get morphine. Because when you get shot at, they can't find a vein, things like that. Interperitoneal. You wouldn't do this for fun either. That's into your stomach. I can do your gut. So these would not be fun routes of administration. We're going from slowest absorption up to fastest absorption. Intravenous. Oh, now we're getting. Now we're going somewhere right into the right into the bloodstream. So find a vein. Let's tie it off. That's right. I see that TV. I've never done that. There, vein. Lovely. <coughs> Could go right into the ventricles of the heart or the ventricles of the brain. 
Well, normally you can't do that. It's coming. This is in research. Put a cannula in the rat's head. Now you would this they, if you're doing it for fun, you do these things. Everything here up to so all the ones up to intravenous get in the bloodstream by the diffusion. They just diffuse into the bloodstream. Except IV and IP injections. Oh sorry, IV and uh, uh, IV yeah, well they're both IV. Intravenous and intravenous. Now, inhalation also works the same way. You can inhale gases or solids. So you might be smoking something. We don't have to be. You can be just inhaling fumes, thinking about gas, huffing, things like that. Glue sniffing. Paint thinner, whatever. Now, orally, so if you're taking the drug orally, uh, the rate of administration is going to depend greatly on lipid solubility. The more soluble, the easier the absorption. The more soluble in fat, the easier the absorption. And if it gets ionized, if, if the molecules themselves get ionized in the way in, they're not going to be absorbed. And the rate tends to be constant orally because it's being broken down in your stomach. Okay. So this typically is not something we're going to use. We're going to use that to get a nice, long, steady amount of, of drug. In other words, what are we looking at here? Usually something clinical, something therapeutic. Right? Something therapeutic here. That doesn't have to be. If you've ever done like edible cannabis, it's it takes a little longer. Like you know, when you smoke weed, it hits you pretty quickly. If you eat it, it takes a little while, and then you're high for like hours because it's slow. Right? And your whole house smells like weed because you baked it into cookies because you're an idiot. But you don't care because it's not your house, but then your friend's mom comes home. So once it's absorbed into the bloodstream, it has to get past the blood-brain barrier, which basically keeps out nasty stuff. I think of the blood-brain barrier kind of like a sieve. It, it, I mean, it isn't, but I think of it that way sort of uh, as an analogy. Some things just can't make it through. Something's got to cross the membrane through passive transport. Something's through active transport. Passive transport is just by fusion. Active transport is like the sodium potassium pump is active transport. Things like that. It's not the sodium potassium pump doing this. But it's the same idea. It takes energy to take those molecules of the drug and move them into the nervous, into the nervous system. Uh, sometimes you get some protein binding with some of the drugs, and that'll stop them from making it through the blood barrier. Kidneys and liver are how you get rid of drugs. And for most drugs, we measure their amount of time in the nervous system, like how quickly it takes them to break down in half-life. The same thing you do with radioactive decay. 
So if the half-life of cocaine is 40 minutes, and you've taken 100 milligrams of caffeine, in 40 minutes, you still have 50 milligrams of cocaine in your system. And in another hour, right? Or sorry, another 40 minutes, another 40 minutes, another 40 minutes, you now have 25 milligrams. Another 40 minutes, you have that 12 and a half, another, that we can keep going. Okay? So it's measured in half-life. It's not, almost all drugs work like that. Alcohol doesn't. Alcohol is absorbed and excreted constantly. It's really weird. But every other drug doesn't work that way. Questions so far? Yeah, you good? So what affects the metabolism? Age, so depending on the drug, it might be that it's, it's more quickly metabolized, more slowly metabolized, the older you are. This is also true sometimes, uh, have you gone through puberty yet? Right. Or are you past a certain age? It isn't always necessarily puberty. Like little kids below two shouldn't have caffeine. It's just dumb. It's just, they, 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 oh, we, we feel like poison them, really. Just that they don't. The half-life of caffeine in an adult is 30 minutes. The half-life of caffeine in a toddler is three and a half days. Hope you're not busy. Hmm. Don't give your kid chocolate when they're that young. Just don't. There's caffeine in chocolate. Just don't. People always say, oh, sugar. It's not the sugar. It's the chocolate, you idiot. It's got caffeine in it. Later on, it's fine. Sex, sometimes male-female differences. Um, men, for example, meta metabolize alcohol more quickly than women. That's a hormonal thing. That's even when you factor out the fact that women, on average, have more body fat. So if you factor that out, it's still the case that women don't metabolize alcohol as quickly as men, so women get drunk more easily than men do. Right? You can probably think of sort of anecdotally that's true, but it's, it's, it's a real thing. A species. Sure, of course. So when I mentioned caffeine, it's the same thing with, so every other species except adult humans metabolizes caffeine in a very, very slowly, so caffeine affects them for days. Adult humans, it's like we can, you can drink coffee and go to bed. Right? Half-life of caffeine's eh, like around 30 minutes for any of us. So there's 100 milligrams of caffeine in a cup of coffee. There's 50 left in 30 minutes. There's 25 left in, 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 an, in an hour. There's 12 and a half left in an hour and a half. There's six and a quarter left in two hours. Like two hours and a half, we're at three and an eighth milligrams. Of spree. There's basically no caffeine in if you're a dog, don't give your dog coffee, is what I'm saying. You know dogs, they'll just eat anything, too, or drink anything, because they're just dogs, they're idiots. Dogs puke and then eat it, because it's like, oh, it's like a buffet. Dogs are idiots. So they'll eat, they'll give, don't give your dog coffee, unless you want to be awake with your dog for the next couple, you know, four or five days. Hey, Rusty, come here. Why don't you name the dog Rusty? I don't know why that is. I mean, I don't have a dog named Rusty. 
Want some coffee? Don't do that. So basically, every other species, so you can't really do caffeine research on, you can do it on animals, but not for the effects of caffeine and generalizing it to people. There's other reasons to use caffeine as a stimulant that's interesting and all, but you wouldn't want to try to generalize to people. Ooh, excuse me. Uh, enzyme induction and enzyme depression. So sometimes drugs, when you take a drug, it causes you to produce certain enzymes or not produce certain enzymes. It may affect the metabolism, right? Because metabolism, a lot of more metabolism is about as enzymes, but it's the breaking down molecules. When you look at something like, oh, there's an enzyme induction effect in the metabolism of caffeine, where if you eat broccoli, it doubles the speed of your metabol of the metabolism for caffeine, if you eat enough broccoli. Why, right? So this is where you're going to get these super additive effects, or the enzyme depression. So one drug causing another drug to, 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 to not, sorry, one drug causing uh, enzymes not to be produced that are necessary to break down another drug again. So if you put absorption and excretion together, you get the time course of the drug. Okay? It's not very good scan. So that's the absorption, that's the excretion. You add those two curves together. One's a plus, one's a minus. So you take the absorption, you subtract the excretion, and you get the time course of the drug. Absorption, excretion. We take this, we subtract this, we get that. Okay. Take this, we subtract that, you get the result, which is the time course of your <clears throat> Question so far. So one of the things that you end up getting, uh, one of the results of all this stuff, is you have what's called a therapeutic window. So if you're using a drug, and this can be for being high, if you want, or this can be for pain or whatever, dealing with psychiatric symptoms, doesn't matter what it is, you want to maintain enough of the drug in the system to do the thing you want it to do. It's like when you go to a, <coughs> hell, if it's when you go out drinking, eventually you got to move over to maintenance beers just to keep the buzz going, right? So I'm told. So this is, if the drug has a long time course, the therapeutic window is large. So something, let's say we're giving for some sort of psychiatric symptoms, like say an antipsychotic drug or an antidepressant drug. We want a long therapeutic window, a big therapeutic window. We want a long time course. We want something that's going to be absorbed slowly, 
excreted slope. Right? So when we take those two curves, we get a nice, big, fat, flat curve. That's what we're looking for. If we're doing it because we're doing it therapeutically. If you're doing it because you want to be high, you want this to be short. Right? You want it to be right away. So the time course is shorter, this is going to be harder to dig. This is one of the problems, say, like, if you've got something like well, a lot of opiates. So you might give an opiate in a pill form or a patch. It absorbs, diffuses through, through your skin. You might want that if you want to use it for clinical reasons, right? Or you think of something, look, look, think of the roots of administration, or sorry, yeah, and the different time courses you want for something like nicotine. When you smoke, you want it right away. Right? If cravings go away immediately, we have a, you suck on a cigarette, you let, it's, it's gone. You suddenly feel great. Right? Like, this is the greatest day of my life. The greatest thing I've ever done is light this cigarette. Because it's gone, and you feel it. On the other hand, you can't be constantly sucking on cigarettes when you're quitting smoking. That kind of defeats the purpose of quitting smoking, because you're smoking. But if I give you a patch, a nicotine patch, and it slowly is absorbed into your body, long therapeutic window, we end up with, you don't get the craving so much, but you're still getting it in at a very slow level. Same thing with an, with an opiate, you might even use that with a patch. Or an or oral administration of a pill. I don't know if I want to start the drug taking stuff. <coughs> yeah, let's not do that. Right, so questions about the idea of a therapeutic window. Because we're going to shift gears in a second, and it would be crazy to start something that I'm going to end, I would end literally in 58 seconds. All right, I'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. I'm on the next flight to where the lights will never sleep at all. Cause you drive me crazy, just like a record spinning round. Whoa, 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 I'm better than being wrapped around your freaking girls.
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Brodbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.